0: Hello, and welcome to Cartography, the podcast that blends Magic the Gathering and game design. I'm your host, Jake Mosby, better known as PR in the Custom Magic Community. And this is episode 17, Eyes in the Skies. Our guest this week is Carl, better known as Zeropath in the Custom Magic Community. He's been working on a sci-fi set called metropolis and today he's here to talk with us about top-down design. Carl, how's it going, man?
1: Uh, it's going really good. Thanks for having me.
0: For sure. Glad to have you. You know, we always try to get our listeners to kind of understand where our guests are coming from. So how long have you been part of the magic community?
1: So I, I first picked up magic in elementary school. I had uh, some neighbor friends who picked it up. This was a long time ago. I think like Ice Age had just come out. Um, I remember buying Homelands booster wow. packs. And uh, oddly, I really liked Homelands, actually, as a kid who didn't really know the value of you know, better cards. You know, after elementary school, I kind of put it away for a long time. I played some other games like uh, the Star Wars and Star Trek collectible card games, the Lord of the Rings one that Decipher did. And then I put away games for a long time till after college. I was just kind of curious, like, what is magic up to these days? Like how they're still going apparently, whereas Decipher has, you know, closed its doors. What's going on there? And so I just went to the uh, Wizards of the Coast webpage, and they had this image up uh, for Zendikar, Ameria, uh, the Sky Ruins, or something like that. And it was just the most breathtaking art. I was like, wow, that is an amazing world. I want to get into that. As far as the Custom Magic community, I think I got into it maybe almost like four years ago, maybe longer, I'm not sure. Just kind of doing the the weekly contests on the Custom Magic subreddit. Um, Yeah, and then from there, I just started designing individual cards for the contests, and then Uh, little miniature sets and then netropolis was my first attempt to make a full set
0: very cool yeah i definitely remember the winners judge games they're a lot of fun go check those out if you haven't yet
1: are they still doing those
0: um i know that they are on the mtg salvation forums i don't know if the custom magic uh subreddit is actually still running uh any of those contests
1: so i mean there's still stuff like that out there and it's great for getting into design to to just you know do the individual cards
0: yeah, individual card design is—it's uh, a really important, just skill to develop and keep warm, uh, to be able to design cards that aren't for a specific environment or anything like that. So it's also fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how you eventually got into designing Metropolis, um, and did you say that you had um, done any kind of smaller projects before the full set?
1: well um what i'd started to do because i was kind of looking for a set i wanted to do a bigger project because i was very interested in the idea of curating a limited environment and really i think my end goal was to have a complete set that i could draft with friends uh, in real life be like i made this whole thing right and just see how it plays to see if i can duplicate this the design decisions that i'm reading about on the mothership right uh, but I, I couldn't really settle on a set idea that I really liked. I had an idea for like a World War II type set where there's a world at war and lots of factions and, you know, war technologies. And I really liked that idea, except I do problems with it. You know, I, I wasn't devoted to making a whole set out of it. So something I decided to do was I have all these ideas for sets. Let me just make like three boosters worth of each of them. And so I, I did something that I called 45 Card Fridays. It became more like... 45 cards four times a year <laughs> instead of every Friday but that's how I stumbled on metropolis I was just looking for art for one of these other you know mini sets that I was making and searching around on deviant art for art for my sets I saw all of this awesome cyberpunk art and I would see that and be like why can't I use something unique and awesome like that and I thought well, I guess I can, you know, there's no reason not to. And the impetus for Netropolis at that point was, well, this was before I found the art. I was like, uh, what would a set be like if you removed a color? And I thought the color that could best be removed was green. I'm like, well, if you remove green, what then does magic look like? It becomes a lot more uh, progressive and technological. Um, There's no like nature's conscience, right? From there, I was like, well, let's make this 45 cards of a non-green set and kind of let green bleed a little bit into the other colors. And uh, that first version of Natropolis was crazy. It had uh, ninjutsu I brought back because of all of this great cyber ninja art. I had colored living weapon for each of the different colors, which didn't make sense flavor-wise, but, you know, felt mechanically cool. Um, I had a mechanic where called reprogram in blue and black where when you reprogram something you sacrifice an artifact and you can search your library for another artifact of the same mana cost and put it into play uh, which is an awful mechanic (laughs) but kind of like transmute a lot like transmute except artifacts are oftentimes more powerful than creatures in some ways because they can't also attack and block so they have other powerful splashy abilities And there's a reason that Transmute is not coming back, right? It just makes games feel the same over and over. And this was that to the extreme, I think. But yeah, so it was just this really weird, fun thing, and I got a lot of really good feedback on it. And as soon as I posted it, I kind of knew, I want to go deeper on this. I want to see what magic looks like in a cyberpunk world.
0: And I think that from what I've seen so far, you've definitely executed well on really bringing up the cyberpunk feel. So you talked a bit about what your initial mechanics looked like. Uh, What are the mechanics looking like right now?
1: So right now, um, I've simplified a lot, but I still have some complexities there. I'd say the main mechanic right now is Upload. And the idea behind Upload is it creates, it uses the exile zone, which I usually don't like in my custom mechanics. But uh, it uses it in a very specific way, which... intuitive and makes sense. Whenever you upload something, you put it into exile, and at any point the owner of that card can pay two mana to return it to his or her hand. And when I say any point, I mean you still have to do it at sorcery speed, but basically until the end of the game, uh, whoever owns that card can put it into his or her hand. The applications for upload are are really cool because you can use it as a pseudo removal spell. So I have a, a blue instant where you just upload target creature It's like a more extreme bounce spell, where instead of bouncing it into their hand, you're you're bouncing it into Exile, where they can then pay two to put it into their hand. You can also use it as a different kind of discard, so you can have some really powerful discard effects, but then they will still be able to get that card back. So it's interesting for tempo, but it's also interesting for card advantage as well. You can have some more aggressively-costed card draw cards, that let you upload cards off the top of your library and they're not going directly into your hand they're going into the exile zone and then you can pick okay i don't actually want to draw that seventh land but i do want to draw the other card that i uploaded i'll pay two for this you know doom Blade or whatever um, and use that so it offers a lot of selection it also just has tons of design space uh, gives you more knobs to tweak uh, so i really like upload and it just kind of carries the tone of internet idea uh, which is important in metropolis, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's really cool. I mean, basically, with upload, your design space is anytime a card would go somewhere, you can upload it instead. Is really the the design space you're working with.
1: Yeah, basically. So, Magic has cards going to different zones a lot, right? <laughs> things dying, things you know, uh, things being bounced, things being put on the library, etc. So, uh, upload is really the the main mechanic of the set, and in addition to that. I have privilege, and uh, privilege is, uh, I think it's called a keyword ability, where it has like the italic text and then. An
0: ability word, yeah.
1: Ability word, thank you. Basically, privilege says as long as you have the most life among all players, you get a bonus, uh, which just screams, win more, right? Absolutely, yeah. But the design actually came about. From an opposite thought which is that new players love life gain they love their life gain even though life gain is not impactful to the board uh drafting life gain cards will often make you lose it just feels really good to gain life and it feels like it should get you back into a game to gain life but oftentimes it doesn't like you're still behind the new player just doesn't know it and i thought well what if gaining life actually did become that's kind of a swing where you gain life you have the most life and that actually gives you an advantage now yeah so privilege is is put mostly on some white green and black creatures to give them little bonuses at common if you have more life and it does encourage you to get ahead by having a nice uh, low to medium curve so that you can be aggressive and make sure you have the most life but there's also ways to just Gain life off a life gain spell, and it being worth it because the bonuses to your creatures is worth it in a combat step. So it makes life gain well a lot more valuable, and it uh, it excites newer players.
0: Yeah, I definitely was worried when I first saw privilege for exactly the reasons that you're talking about about the whole like win more snowballing type uh, scenarios. But I hadn't really considered the new player angle. That's really interesting. That's a good idea actually to cater to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, the question is the execution, though, too, because losing to a snowballing opponent is a, an awful experience for a new player to have, even worse than it is good to have a good life gain mechanic. But in playtesting, it's been interesting that instead it's, it's actually led to interesting close games where people are doing different things than they would normally do to preserve their life total when normally the correct play is to ignore your life total and you know try and gain value somewhere else. Um, So I've actually been pleased with it in practice. So that's upload, privilege, and then there's hack. Hack has gone through a lot of iterations. Uh, When you talk about top-down, one of the main things you expect out of a cyberpunk set is hackers. And I knew that I needed a hack mechanic, and I found that blue and black are very difficult colors to have a mechanic for. It's just uh, the, the space where blue and black overlap has been really hard for me to design. Uh, what I've settled on is hack right now is something that's on spells. And after you cast your spell and it's in your graveyard, the spell will say like hack three and a blue. And this means that whatever a creature you control deals combat damage to an opponent, you may pay three and a blue. If you do, you may return this card to your hand.
0: Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about transmute um, and how it leads to repetitive game states. Are you doing anything to mitigate the risk of repetitive game play with hack, or uh, I know that you've been looking into alternatives as well. Uh, another thing I've been thinking of doing is just changing
1: hack altogether into a different kind of mechanic, because one issue with the set that I'm looking at is many of these mechanics are mana sinks, which are mechanics where you really only get to use them to their fullest when you have a bunch of free mana that you otherwise can't use. So, you know, you have six lands in play, You don't draw a creature, what do you do with your mana? Well, here's stuff you can do. I am concerned about the recursion of hack. Like, that is something you don't want in limited environments, it's too much recursion because then it just feels very repetitive and the formats can be broken more easily if players can figure out, you know, the most ideal cards to continually get back in your hand. You are right, though, that I'm looking at something else. I don't want too many uh, mana sync mechanics. And so I'm looking at actually a form of ingest. It's basically just literally ingest, jest, which was not a popular mechanic, but it's just called hack, and every hacker has a trigger that when this creature hacks an X card, you get Y bonus. And so these hackers are also the processors in some ways, but they're not processors in the BFZ sense where you just look at any exiled card and you return it to the graveyard for an effect. Instead, it only cares about what's being exiled when it hits the opponent. I was inspired by some stuff from... Wilds of Muraganda, which is an interesting dinosaur set where they use ingest, you know, for the dinosaurs, right? They eat stuff. And he had some, yeah, it, the designs are really cool. Yeah, and Inanimate, I think, was the one who was showing me some of that stuff as a potential way to take hack. So I'm looking at switching it to something like that because it doesn't require mana to do that. And it, it still feels like hacking, right? Like you're you're messing with the opponent's library. And depending on what you can get out, you get a neat effect.
0: Right. It's smart that you're going almost more um, like what what your implementation that you're talking about where the hackers are self-sufficient with the cards that they're hacking uh, reminds me a lot of the implementations that we've seen of Energy in the Kaladesh block uh, where you know cards are a lot more self-sufficient with the resources that they're su- being supplied. Yeah. And I think that was a good call with Energy. And I'm kind of surprised that it didn't do
1: that with Ingest in the first place. Because it's not like ingest has like a ton of design space and they were saving this for later because the ingest cards feel so parasitic with these commons that only have ingest and nothing else going on.
0: Right. Yeah. There's definitely a ton that we could talk about for Battle for Zendikar block and uh, some of the errors in in there. Uh, But I think that'll be a different discussion. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh (laughs) boy. Yeah. Um, And then the last mechanic is arm, which it's an action word, I think is what it's called. Yep and uh, so when you arm something you create an equipment token that um, gives plus one plus one to the creature has an equip cost of two and it's pretty simple it takes a lot of text but it takes less now that kaladesh has given us the create templating but there's a lot of fun things you can do with it you can design creatures that get bonuses for being equipped and you don't have to fill your set with lots of different kinds of equipment and the thing about equipment is a lot of players when they see equipment they're not sure if they want it in their deck or not because they know it requires a creature and to only pick an equipment and hope you have the creature you know it's not always the most satisfying pick but to get a creature that also equips itself that you can later equip to something else is uh, a lot more appealing and of course it's another manacing. so those are the the four main mechanics
0: I'm glad that you're sticking to four mechanics and not going up to the full five. Um, I think that a lot of sets are pretty okay at four mechanics, and they'll tend to overburden themselves if they go much higher than that.
1: Yeah, I I was really inspired by Kaladesh only having three mechanics, um, because, I mean, you can name all the mechanics easily, and they can explore the space a lot more, and they can afford to pick mechanics that have lots of space instead of jamming five you know very limited mechanics in the same set so i i I like that too i I wish more custom sets did that although i kind of understand you know when making a set start with lots of mechanics and winnow it down to what's working and what's fun
0: that's definitely the way to do it um so for netropolis um you know we've talked about the mechanics and i i want to actually point out too um so i think that arm is actually really cool and does something clever. Uh, I imagine it was kind of the evolution of you having living weapon in the set. Um, But it just kind of increases the number of artifacts that are just around in the limited environment, which makes it feel much more futuristic.
1: Yeah. And all of the, the arming cards in the set have art of guns. And um, I know something shadow centaur said when he was on the show was, he knows magic is never going to guns uh, because they've said so. You know, Even if they're to do a Wild West-themed set, they're not going to have guns in it. I I knew the same thing in my... Well, I also know they're not doing cyberpunk, for one. But it's just another way to say this is magic but different, and different in a way that even wizards won't do, but still with wizard standards, hopefully, of design and development. Uh, so I know I'm, I'm curating a unique experience for, for
0: anybody, and I think ARM
1: kind of shows that off in a yeah. lot of ways.
0: So we've heard a lot about the mechanics that are going on in Netropolis. Uh, we know that it's a cyberpunk set. You definitely came at Netropolis from the perspective of just like right off the bat, you knew it was going to be a cyberpunk set, right?
1: Yeah. I, Cause I wanted the flavor of cyberpunk. I had actually had zero experience with cyberpunk. Like, I had not played Shadowrun, um, Netrunner, like any of the more famous cyberpunk games. I had not seen any of the more famous cyberpunk movies or cyberpunk books, but it's a really appealing aesthetic. Like anytime I saw cyberpunk art, like a giant mech with a sword bashing into, you know, like a building or like another mech or, you know, uh, a cyberpunk ninja with like, a sword that has zeros and ones running up and down the blade like that's awesome yeah Um, i i I just knew i wanted that
0: i'm actually really surprised to hear that you didn't uh really have much background in cyberpunk um so what kind of research did you do because research is really important like being knowledgeable on a subject that you're doing top-down design on is really really important to actually accomplishing that top-down design so what kind of research did you do to familiarize yourself with the genre?
1: I did not do very much research at all. And um, I think my approach is kind of different here than it tends to be in most top-down processes. I just saw art that I liked and uh, and ran with it and kind of like discovered the tropes that way. Like, what what is the cool stuff that's being presented here that immediately appeals to me who has no experience in cyberpunk? And in a way, I think that's, I don't know that it's a better way, but it's, I see its value. If I, who am not an enfranchised cyberpunk guru, right, love this just because it seems cool and awesome, then I want it in my set, right? At the same time, like just going through all of the art, and I did do some research on some cyberpunk tropes, and I wasn't really surprised by any of it. It was just kind of stuff that maybe was resting in the back of my head just from, things that i'd seen so yeah i i guess I, I didn't really do do a lot of research into the genre so much as it's kind of like walking around uh an art exhibit and just seeing what is amazing like what is good here what is what is valuable and taking what spoke to me and things that i think will speak to other people and then try and portray it in a package deal and try and duplicate and replicate that tone that
0: appeals to me gotcha okay and there's actually, like you're saying, there's definitely some merit in that approach. Uh, obviously, you want to be knowledgeable to some degree about the topic that you're covering. Otherwise, why are you even covering it? But as long as, as long as you have, you know, some baseline knowledge, like yeah, you don't want to have a Kamigawa type scenario where you do all this research and put in all this effort into just like becoming like the most knowledgeable person about Japan and Kamigawa's case or like cyberpunk in your case. Uh, and then you put all that knowledge into the cards and you disconnect at that point from the pop culture version of it because you're so deep into like the, the cult following of it, you know? Yeah. And I think it,
1: I mean, it works better for cyberpunk because cyberpunk is not based on a, a famous historical setting. I mean, to the Kawagawa point, I actually think that sometimes wizards approach to over-researching these things and making sure that they have a lot of the nooks and crannies of, say, Greek mythology in their set, I think sometimes it actually Mm, does them mm -hmm. a disservice. I'm thinking of the card, uh, 100-handed one from Theros, and I think this is a really weird concept to have on a card. And then I realize, oh, this is from an obscure thing in Greek mythology. And I think, oh, cool. They found some obscure stuff in Greek mythology. But in that moment, um, my suspension of disbelief is totally gone because I'm not thinking about Theros. I'm thinking about Greek mythology, right?
0: I definitely wouldn't want them to do a whole mechanic around like obscure things like that. I do think that having one or two cards like that is a good idea. Um We were talking on an earlier episode, I don't recall which one, um, but about how details in world building really um, make things feel a lot more fleshed out. Um, So just like little things like having that obscure reference in there can be okay, but don't overdo it.
1: Yeah, and that's a problem, right? It's a detail that calls attention to itself, which then pulls you out of the world. I mean, in my case, it did, right? I was looking more at the fact that they did that, than at the card itself and any world building that it gave.
0: I do think it's important to kind of think about that, though, and that, you know, when we're doing top-down design, kind of at a macro level, not, like, for individual top-down designs, but when you're doing a top-down set, you don't really want to go for, like, full simulation. You don't want to, like, make... So say you're making a game that's all about, like, working a 9 to 5, right? You don't want to go for full simulation of like nitty gritty like here's what you do from 9 to 10 from 10 to 11 blah 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 right you want to capture the feeling that people associate with whatever the thing that you're designing is so maybe some humdrudgery about just like the daily grind of going to a 9 to 5 but don't go for the full simulation of just like what it actually entails yeah
1: in the last podcast you did with an animate about experiential design uh, one thing that I was thinking of Sometimes for these top-down sets, you look at something like Innistrad. Well, particularly Innistrad, right? They decided, okay, we're doing a top-down Gothic horror, and from them, they from there, they decided that the experience they wanted the player to have was one of dread or horror or suspense. The problem with that is, well, that does do like that. That totally respects and supports their top-down theme, and it's even fun to play that way for a lot of people. There's also a lot of people that don't want that experience. They don't want to be in suspense and dread when they're playing magic. I mean, it's not actual suspense and dread, but even the simulation of that, they, they don't enjoy. So I think, like you said, the nine to five magic set, uh, the office, I guess, of magic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what experience are you going to have to go for there? Uh, you, you have to keep in mind what you want your players to go through and what what might turn off some players, and I, I think uh, filling out spreadsheets as a mechanic—you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't want to go there,
0: for sure. Yeah. Okay, so maybe let's talk about why you might want to do a top-down design and what the alternatives are. Um, so you know, we we know that obviously the opposite of top-down is bottom-up, um, but what do these terms really mean?
1: I mean, I have my idea of what they mean, but like, just to be sure, before this podcast, I looked up what Mark Rosewater says, and apparently he made them up. But top-down basically means when you approach a design, you approach it first from the concept of flavor. You start with the flavor and then work your way down. And I guess bottom-up would be the inverse of that, where you start purely mechanical, you know, the way you want this effect to play out in a game, and then you add flavor, kind of hook it into the feel of the sets and, you know, the creative elements afterwards. So in my mind, I see top-down design as a procedural term. It's a process. I think too often we look at sets and we think, was this a bottom-up set or a top-down set? When I think, ideally, they both have the same kind of end product where the flavor and the mechanics work well together. And it's just different ways of getting to the same end result.
0: And I think that's a really, really good way to look at it. Um, Either way... You know, whatever process you take to designing your cards, you want the end product to be a polished, resonant experience that your players can connect to, right? And I think that top-down, you know, you're starting with flavor, but more than just flavor, you're starting with a concept or an idea or an inspiration. You know, you're starting with that part of the card that is going to be the engaging part for players. It's essentially whether you're going to start out trying to make a Vorthos card that Melvin enjoys versus a Melvin card that Vorthos enjoys, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, these these names, by the way, uh Vorthos is kind of the made up word for the player that's super into flavor, and Melvin correspondingly is the player that's super into mechanics.
1: I, I think what you said about, you know, starting with flavor, I forget the exact way you phrased it, but I think it's the point was really important that You want to bring people in with the flavor. And a lot of people play games specifically because of flavor. And I think we underestimate that too often as totally enfranchised Magic players who are willing to play just about any variation of Magic in a lot of cases. The thing that got me into Magic as a kid was the flavor, was, wow, I want to play a game where I can be a wizard. That was the first time when I was a kid. The second time when I came back to Magic was when I saw an image of this amazing, breathtaking adventure world of Zendikar. Now, in between then, I had seen some magic cards, and I specifically remember seeing the hybrid mechanic on a card. Just out of context, I didn't know, I didn't know what magic was doing at the time, if it was a multicolor set or not. But I do remember thinking, wow, they're really stretching for space now. Like, the only way this game can keep going is, you know, doing these weird mechanical tricks with mm. now the mana, I guess. It was a sign to me that, like, you know, that did not excite me. The mechanics did not excite me. And I think for most people who play games, um, if they're not already familiar with Magic, your mechanics are not going to bring them into the game. It's going to be the flavor. And I think one of the great advantages of Magic has been its fantastic art from the beginning to now. Um, And uh, the reason that Mark Rosewater calls this top-down design instead of, you know, flavor first or something like that is I guess when he, he first said the term, he was thinking of the top of the card going to the bottom. When you look at the top of the card, you see the name and you see the art, and that's all flavor resonance stuff. Um, people, a lot of times when they think of top-down design or they think of flavor, they think of the flavor text, but the flavor text is like, that's the sprinkles on the top of the cake. That's the last thing anybody reads, um, except
0: for like the name of the artist, right? So you're totally right that players are really, really connected to the flavor of their games. You know, they they want to have an experience or whatever. And we see this not just in Magic, right? But we see this in all kinds of other game design as well. Betrayal of the House on the Hill. I think that's the full name of this game. I'm forgetting exactly how it's phrased. Uh, But Betrayal is really, really uh, flavor-based. It's a super popular game. And honestly, the gameplay mechanics aren't that interesting. Like there's a lot of uh, imbalance stuff going on in that game, like mechanically. But man, even with that, people just really, really love the experience of like going into a haunted house and not knowing how things are going to turn out. And there's tons of other similar game designs where that kind of thing, you know, the the flavor of the game is just like a home run and it really carries the design.
1: Yeah. Um, I mentioned how I played the Star Wars collectible card game you know, after I gave up on magic as a kid. uh, It was really interesting card game, had very cool mechanics and it did pretty well because it had the Star Wars license. Well, Decipher lost the Star Wars license after their contract ran out, but they really liked the game mechanics. So what they did was they relaunched the game with new cards and completely new flavor and they called it Wars TCG. And it was this space opera game. They simplified some of the mechanics, they executed them better. Mechanically, it was probably a better game than the Star Wars collectible card game, but they sold very little. It did not do very well at all, even though the mechanics were arguably stronger than they had ever been before. But it was the flavor that was missing this time. Uh, It was much harder work to sell their new world than it was to sell the Star Wars franchise for obvious reasons. And I think to a similarly smaller scale, it's very difficult to sell a new variation on the fantasy setting with really cool mechanics than it is, you know, Wild West magic or Egypt magic, or, you know, the, whatever, whatever other cool top-down theme you have.
0: I think it's really fortuitous. I'm really glad that you brought up the Star Wars card game and kind of the, the whole idea of licensed titles. One of the things that's actually really important when you're working with an already established, uh, intellectual property is really making sure that you pay like extra close attention to whatever references you can. You really want to make as many of those kind of cool, clever, cute references as you possibly can f- squeeze in. One example that I was actually thinking about um, I was talking with a friend about the Star Wars Destiny card game that's just recently come out. They do a really, really good job of making sure that all of their art contains characters that are most likely to use whatever the specific card is. Kind of as an example, they've got a card, like the, the most expensive blue card in the game is called One with the Force. And it's got a picture of Obi-Wan on it, right? This is like in their first set or whatever. And then in the second set, they actually have Obi-Wan spoiled. So, you know, not even necessarily in the same set, but Obi-Wan comes out and his whole shtick is that when he dies, you get to play a blue card from your hand for free. So here's Obi-Wan, who gives you a free blue card, and here's the most expensive blue card that exists, called One with the Force, that Obi-Wan gets when he dies.
1: That's that's really satisfying. Like I, I just imagine doing that, just feeling awesome. Um, it reminds me of the expertise cycle that they just did in Aether Revolt, where they designed them specifically so that when you played it, you would then be able to play the legendary... Creature that's named in the expertise card itself. I, I think looking for those little uh, cool combos in gameplay that also evoke flavor, like that's a crucial part of top-down design. Because if you're you're going from top down, but you don't have top-down moments in the gameplay where the gameplay calls back to your flavor, then what you really just have is nice packaging on something else. Like you can't set up expectations and then not deliver. Sure, your players are bringing their expectations to the game for you and doing some of that resonance work, but you also have to
0: satisfy them. And if you don't, then it's going to be even worse. Right. You know, you kind of let them have a really clear idea of what the expectations are in terms of like, they want to have that moment that they saw on in the movie or in the book or whatever uh, the license title may be. And it's your job then to deliver that. And if you do, then those players are just going to be like super satisfied. Uh, more so than I think if, if they were to engage with something that they weren't already familiar with. But if they don't experience that, then they're going to feel like they were let down or misled. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're doing top down is you kind of have the stakes raised for yourself.
1: Yeah. Uh, but you also have a very clear direction. Like if you're ever at a loss, what to do, like, hmm, what else, <laughs> what else do I need in my set? Like, you know, it's very easy to check back to the source material or the source inspiration or whatever tone or experience you're trying to, to go for
0: very and true. Design
1: from there. Um, and I mean, that's, the case also, if you're going bottom up with mechanics, you go back to what what are your mechanical goals and and go from there. It's just a, a mm-hmm. different goal, right?
0: So one other thing that I want to talk about, just kind of when we're talking about the concept of top down design, is that when you're doing these you know these highly thematic things, you want to make it so that when players are engaging with the gameplay components, like with the cards or whatever else, you know, even like dice or tokens or, or counters, you want to make sure that they're speaking like their vernacular is actually in line with the story more so than just like the game right so dan was telling me dan felder was telling me about a game that he was working on for a while where you know he was trying to get players to say things like uh rather than like refresh my ranged attack action and put two success tokens on it blah 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 say something like Refresh Legolas so you can shoot the troll while you block with Gimli, that kind of thing. Like you said earlier, you really want to keep those players immersed in the world, in, in whatever the uh, the top-down flavor that you're trying to get them involved in is. And any time that you have those gameplay components kind of at odds with that or you know taking those players out of the world and into kind of the nitty-gritty of the game, uh, they're going to lose immersion right? They're going to have their suspension of disbelief broken.
1: Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense, and I think uh, I wonder if that was part of the thinking of the, the new create uh, templating, like when you make a token, instead of saying put a token you put a blah 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 token onto the battlefield under your control, saying create a token, making the, the verbiage of what players are actually saying match
0: Yeah, and just kind of streamlining that to, you know, like, like you're saying, to be a bit more consistent and less intrusive.
1: Um, I think there's some other good reasons to do top-down design. Like if you're doing anything creative, approaching from a different angle than you normally would every now and then is good because you're asking different questions, so you're getting different answers than you normally would. And I also think, you know, we talk a lot about the experience that you want a player to have, and too often we undervalue how important the flavor is to the experience as opposed to uh, what's mechanically going on in the game and what we're asking the players to do. We also need to think about what we're asking the players to, to feel, like what what else they're they're thinking about. Like when they look at a card, they're looking at the image first. I guarantee it. You gotta have that flavor nailed down as part of the experience.
0: Yeah, there was a heat map that Wizards did uh, where it showed basically the order in which players' eyes traced a card. And the first thing that people look at is the art. Uh, The second thing was the name line, so the name and then the mana cost. Then people read the rules text, then they looked at if it was a creature, then they looked at the power and toughness, and then they looked at the type line.
1: No, that that totally makes sense. And I guess just the last reason that I, I'd say try top-down design, we, we are unique in that we're not wizards. We don't have a creative team waiting for us to hand mechanics to them for them to figure mm-hmm. out the flavor for, right? <laughs> it is much, much harder to come up with the creative following the mechanics and have it still be evocative and resonant. Uh, it just seems much easier to me to start from the other direction, but that might be a personal thing. Uh, and I do think everybody thinks differently about this. Oh, and another thing is top-down design works especially well in Magic because the base mechanics are always good. Magic has, is always going to be fun, generally. Like, you have to work hard to make Magic completely unfun in your custom sets. We know that the base mechanics are going to be fun. So making sure that the flavor works, that leaves more to us, the custom designers, uh, to figure out and work on.
0: Yeah, it's always a struggle when you try to find art for whatever project you're working on, and especially like if you've gotten too invested in you know mechanics or anything like that. You know, it can be a real hassle to find things that work together. And you find, especially doing custom magic, that you have to make a lot of compromises that way.
1: Oh yeah, it's. I mean, in some ways, that's what makes it uh, kind of fun. Like you know that that challenge is unique to being a custom magic designer as opposed to. Sitting in R and D at Wizards of the Coast, um, but it also creates for interesting design decisions too. Like uh, I know Shadow Centaurs complained, like there's only a single picture of a zombie miner on the internet that he can find, and he's probably the foremost mm-hmm. expert on pictures of zombie miners <laughs> on the internet, uh, and so he has to design a card that makes sense with that art. I started one of the weekly contests on the Custom Magic subreddit a long time ago as design uh, design for the image or something like that. And I just put an image and says, make a card based on this image. And that contest Hmm. lasted a long time. It might still be around, but it's just a different approach to to designing cards. And it makes you think things differently. I will say, though, that something that bugs the crap out of me is seeing the same art in everybody's sets because... The author's names start with A and they're at the very beginning of the custom art pack. <laughs> well, yeah. there's an enormous art pack that has, you know, thousands and thousands of images, which is a wonderful resource to have. And you can use it to to comb through it, and look for images for your for your cards. But some of those images have been in that pack for so long that you instantly recognize them. It's like, oh, it's the the picture by Alexi Breiklot or whatever his name is of a, a cleric with a a scepter out with his arms outstretched walking into the battlefield. You know, I've seen that on like Mm -hmm. 50 different cards. I guess this is just my plea to don't undervalue what the art does for your set. Even among people who already play magic, it's annoying to see the same art or art that is not flavorful and
0: evocative. So one thing that I want to talk about while we're having this discussion is the merit of gosh, it's hard to really put into words, but I guess of kind of merging the ideas of going top down and bottom up. So
1: meet meet in the middle a little bit. Yeah.
0: I think that there's some merit to something like that. I haven't done it myself yet, so I can't really endorse it, but I think that there is opportunity to kind of blend these two styles.
1: I I almost think you always have to blend them. It's just at what point in the process are you blending them? If there's a, a discord between the mechanics and the flavor, then you've lost right as a designer like you failed and so you can't decide flavor down like we were talking about the office magic set like all right so i've got my nine to five uh flavorful magic set i'm gonna have my spreadsheet mechanic i'm gonna have you know uh my break mechanic 15 minute break mechanic (laughs) and you know, players are gonna really feel like they're at work. It's going to be the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you also have to look what mechanics are fun, <laughs> and uh, if, if you're creating a, the right experience, the experience has to be fun, and it can't just be resonant. Uh, I, I I can have a resonant experience playing the the Office Magic game and be like, wow, I really feel like I'm at work. <laughs> they they. <laughs> They did it, and I don't ever want to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I'm, I think that's... You know, when I started with ninjutsu and living weapon, like, those were the mechanics that came to mind just because they're what fit Metropolis uh, most obviously flavorfully in the moment. Like, oh, I have ninjas. I'll give them ninjutsu, right? But ninjutsu is a very complicated attacking and blocking mechanic. If you have that as a mechanic in your set... Uh, the experience that you're showing the player is uh, attacking and blocking is where a lot of the tension in the game is like this experience is about being deceptive you know all the things that come with ninjutsu Um, and so I've, I've changed a lot of these mechanics to try and create a more overall cohesive experience so I've had to work from the bottom up to meet my flavor coming down and you look at a lot of other sets that have really cool mechanical ideas they don't ignore flavor until the very last moment and have really cool flavor text to, to make things work they they do think about their overall flavor to try and create this good experience uh, kind of in between
0: so maybe let's talk about then kind of the steps of the process of going you know between top down uh all the way down to the bottom essentially of getting the mechanics and everything figured out that sound good
1: uh yeah, except I I don't know what the steps are exactly. I don't know. I, I'm interested <laughs> to hear what you have to say about that. Don't worry, I, I've got it. Okay, good. Uh,
0: so I've got kind of a list here that I pulled initially from a Mark Rosewater article that was back in 2003. I think was this one that he wrote it. Things have changed a bit since then, and I've found ways to streamline the parts of it that. I think still makes sense. So the first thing that you're gonna need to do if you're going with a top-down design is you're gonna need to identify your inspiration. There's almost a zero step in that it's so fundamental, but you really need to know what you're actually designing from a top-down perspective, like what your flavor is, what your inspiration is to make this particular card. The next thing that you need to do is become at least baseline knowledgeable about what the subject is that you're talking about um, so that you actually have a baseline for implementing The design? You can speak the language. Exactly, yeah. So then the third step is brainstorming on the theme. So, like, kind of breaking down what does this inspiration look like? What does this mean? Like, with the terrible office magic example, right? Like, like you said, you know, what does it mean to be working in your office? Well, maybe you've got spreadsheets. Maybe you've got, you know, your desk or your chair or whatever. Kind of breaking down that theme into its more fundamental parts. The step after that, step four, would be translating that theme breakdown, that brainstorm, into an initial uh, attempt at gameplay mechanics. So that's finally where you actually say, okay, actually, I've got a good example. I was helping someone uh, work on their monster hunter theme set, and they were trying to figure out what their hunter should do. So I was working with them, and it was like, okay, let's break down what what does a monster hunter look like in your world? You know, what are some of the core parts of what a monster hunter does or you know, how that plays out? So we came up with things like, well, a, a hunter tracks the monsters that it's dealing with and that the hunter has to, you know, engage in combat with the the monster that it's hunting and it has to, you know, have good timing to dodge the monster's attacks and then make its own counterattacks and things like that. And then finally, it gets rewarded for taking down the monster. So those, those were kind of the three major things that we thought of for the hunters. So then it was up to translating those those three things into actual gameplay mechanics, right? So if you're tracking a monster, maybe that's like, you know, you have to actually, you're encouraged to get engaged with it in combat. Uh, or if it's, you know, blocking a specific creature type, then maybe it gets a bonus. That kind of thing would be like at least a first attempt at tracking. And then, you know, that kind of ties in with getting kind of that dodge or outplay moment where you are actually like dodging the monster's attacks and counterattacking with your own, you know, you maybe get some combat tricks in there. And then finally, the reward aspect would be something like maybe getting plus one plus one counters if you actually kill a monster, like a singer vampire type effect or something like that, right? So just translating those kind of core themes that we identified into an initial attempt at mechanics. Uh, And then, of course, the last step, which is something that comes up on the podcast all the time, playtest. Playtest, iterate, find what works, find what doesn't work, find new things that fit in the holes of what didn't work. You know, you're really trying to capture that feeling, like we said earlier in the cast, you're trying to capture the feeling that people associate with being a monster hunter right so just keep iterating until you get closer and closer to that goal that you're trying to hit so those are those are those kind of five steps for top down design
1: no i i agree i think that that makes that makes a lot of sense and i think the last one playtesting is really important because uh, when you think about a tone or a vision of an experience you want your players to have you can't rely entirely on the flavor be like if they look at a a lot of pictures of mummies and and ancient Egyptian gods, then my set is amazing because they have thought about ancient Egypt, right? Like, that doesn't work. The the gameplay has to be fun. And it's not going to be fun if you don't playtest it. It's too easy to assume that your vision is how things are going to work out exactly.
0: Right, yeah. There's a very big gap between the experience of designing a card and looking at a card on a forum and the experience of playtesting a card and having it in your hand in a real game. I was actually talking with, uh, I forget who it was. Uh, I was talking with, I think it was Dan again, about how actually designing cards while you playtest, like what would be good and uh, relevant and resonant in this moment? And actually like coming up with designs on the fly Mm. then and there. Maybe not necessarily playing with them right then and there, but at least, you know, really using playtesting as a design moment.
1: That would be a really fun design game. Yeah, right. Like you play a game with like some corset cards, and each turn, you, <laughs> the other player has to come up with the most resonant designed card to to work with it, and then it enters the game. <laughs> I don't know how that would work, but uh, but that's a really cool idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that Mark Rosewater said in one of his drive to work podcasts about top down design is he said that when you're doing it, you have to think about three things. Uh, And he called it like communication Mm -hmm. theory or something like that. People smarter than me will will know about that. But the the three things are comfort, surprise, and completion. And when you're doing top-down, you uh, have a lot of resonance, which creates comfort for the players coming into it. So with Netropolis, I have hackers, I have corporations, I've got... You know, I've got guns and technology like this brings comfort to someone expecting cyberpunk. But then you have to have the surprise, which is the twist, which is something that makes your set not just a replication, but something that makes it magic, something that makes it a unique experience that they that they want to do. You know, upload is the magic twist on the Internet, right? Like I can't bring the Internet into my game completely, but this is something that players can do in the game that is magic's take on that Um, and then his point on completion was that you can't just have like a cube of cards that have greek tropes in them and you've succeeded right like even if the mechanics of each individual card like uh, return from the underworld or chain to the rocks like those make sense out of context like you see that card you're like yes that's greek mythology i get exactly what it's doing if the whole set working together doesn't feel like the experience of Greek mythology, if there wasn't the hero's journey uh, design goal and Theros, it would have been uh, a failure, right? Because you want the experience to be evocative as a whole, not just a collection of different windows into, uh, into the flavor that you're going for. Um, so just wanted to share those because I, I thought those were all really good, and I'm going to think of everything in terms of communication theory from now on, because it makes a lot of sense. I I think it's uh, something that's good to have in your head when you're doing top down design or really any kind of design, Uh, the comfort surprise and completion are the things that humans crave for when they have experiences.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's a good point to kind of tie everything we've talked about together, um, you know, with, The whole trying to make things resonant to, like, you know, what people expect when they are playing with something cinematic, right? With, like, the Obi Wan thing or something like that. That's essentially completion, right? We're, you know, giving them this this movie moment or, you know, whatever, this flavor moment. The circle is now complete. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's a really good way to tie everything together cool so i guess uh you know we've talked about the various reasons why top down is important we've given some ideas about how our listeners can use top down design on their own i think we've just about got everything covered yeah
1: yeah i think we did it
0: cool uh Zerapath, thanks for being on the show any kind of uh shout outs or anything like that you'd like to give
1: i have three things in fact so first of all please come check out Metropolis. i've got some Playtesting I really need to do. Uh, I've got a full set ready to get playtested. I'm gonna be doing some drafts hopefully uh, very soon. Uh, The second thing is um, a new project that I'm trying to put together. It's called Design a Draft, where eight players all design 45 cards in advance and independent of each other. And then they bring the cards to the draft and then you just draft them all together so kind of a crazy wacky draft except everybody has a theme so like graveyard matters multicolored maps you know if you're interested in, in that take a look at the the channel and the discord uh, and then the last thing is i've been doing some short little youtube videos i've only done a couple so far where i just look at the sets on plain sculptors i just open up a set and i draft it with seven bots and i just give my reactions to the designs and I'll usually post the video in the channel of whatever set I'm looking at so they can get feedback. But if you're interested in looking at some sets through that kind of lens, uh, check that out.
0: Very cool. We've already talked a bit about it, but, you know, anywhere else besides Discord maybe that folks could get a hold of you if they want to talk with you more?
1: Well, I'm not posting that much lately, but I always check out the, the Custom Magic subreddit. It's r slash custom magic on Reddit, um, which is where I first got into Magic Design. The Discord channel is amazing. You should you know, hang out there, check out all of the sets. MTG Salvation has a lot of stuff, a lot of really really smart people there, a lot of great games you can play.
0: Cool. Well, I think uh, that'll just about do it for us today here at Path. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. You can get in contact with the podcast by emailing cardographycast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to keep up with the latest content. We'll see you next week.